This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Good more good afternoon, I should say, Marissa Lennox and for Libby's Nimer today. Happy Tuesday. And you know what that means. The recovering politicians panel is here. Some of what's top of mind broke late Friday, which does feel like a century ago. I always wonder if these decisions are a deliberate attempt to get these stories off of people's minds. But nonetheless, with the long weekend over, we'll get you caught up. Among the headlines, Trudeau's Freedom Convoy shutdown was justified in invoking never-before-used emergency powers to quell the protest in Ottawa. That, according to Commissioner Paul Rulo's 2,000-page report. This will bring no comfort, of course, to those who believe his actions, Trudeau's actions, I should say, were a violation of civil liberties. But will it bring closure? And what kind of precedent does it set? We'll also get to that new CSIS report uncovering the extent to which the Chinese meddled in the last election, affecting the outcomes of 11 races. Trudeau, in his response, response seemingly downplayed the report, expressing concern for how that information was even made public. But first, we begin with MPPs returning to the spotlight. What should they be talking about? What are they likely to talk about? What have they been talking about? I suspect the answer to those two questions may look very different from our panel. But as always, we want to hear from you. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. Let's welcome Peggy Nash, former Ontario NDP MP, George Smitherman, former health minister and deputy premier for the Ontario Liberals and filling in for Lisa Ray to David Tarrant, vice president, national strategic communications at Enterprise. First of all, good afternoon to you all. Hello. George, uh, let's begin with the breaking news this past hour that Mike Schreiner has decided to stay green. There was some speculation that he would cross the floor for the Liberals. What's your reaction? Well, I likely would have supported him uh, had he done so. I can understand why he didn't. Pardon me. And I think the liberal race will shape up just fine with a good uh, cross-section of uh, support. I really thought it was actually the opportunity to put two strong brands together. And I'm not convinced that the Greens have a great future, but he's still a great person and he'll get a certain amount of attention, no doubt. Before we move on, George, do you expect that perhaps in the future he may attempt to do it again? I think the timing was there. If he was ever going to do it, it was now, and I doubt uh, very much that 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 thought will ever come back. But what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Peggy, MPPs are back in session at Queen's Park. What do you hope to see? Well, I think Ontarians are hoping for some accountability. There are huge concerns about the green belt and the carving of that out. To, to the great benefit of some Ontario developers. And uh, now we've learned about this so-called stag and doe uh, function that the, the premier held for his daughter, uh, which, gee, coincidentally was attended by a lot of developers who, uh, who paid money to get, to get into that event. And I think there's going to be a lot of questions asked on a lot of days about that event. And, uh, and more broadly about the green belt and then also concerning health care and the uh, premier's, I think, um, a misstep with his plan to augment private clinics, which will drain off some of our health care resources from our public facilities. So there's lots to talk about uh, while Ontarians are just having to put food on the table and pay the bills. David, you know, we've already seen a focus on this issue of developers at the Premier's home for a stag and doe. Um, but the big issue of the day ought to be healthcare, in my opinion. I mean, do you think that that developer story may overshadow healthcare mm-hmm. to some extent? It, it, it'll overshadow among people who have the time and energy to obsess over politics full time, Marissa. 
you know, it, um, it, you know, it, 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 it's Queen, it, it, it's talking about Parliament Hill or talking about Queen's Park. It's a bit of a soap opera. And it's all good fun for those of us like you, like my Peggy or George, myself, who get to kind of watch these things for a living. And, and we know people who work there. Um, most people in Ontario, um, you know, the, the, the Patriot Games at Queen's Park are, is less important than is there action on housing? Is there action on health care? And certainly, I think we're seeing from the government, but now from the Ford government is, they are delivering action on health care and delivering action on housing and fair game to criticize them, but at least they're doing something about it. And I think that's going to be one of the overarching themes of the session. George? Well, I, I just take issue with that on one point, which, uh, which is that I think the stag and doe popularizes this in a way that really works against brand for Ford. And I think it's been proven in the history of Ontario politics that political fundraising and developers is never a good look. So I actually think that there's a, there's, they're really onto something there. Ford's prickliness on this issue is likely also to be a gift that keeps on giving. So I think the opposition should pound away on these things. Healthcare can be an issue any day you want it to be. But uh, this uh, other thing, because of the stag and doe, the linkage to developers and the policy on the green belt, I think there's a lot there to be had in defining this government and that leader. Hmm. David, I might just get you to react to that one. I mean, it, it really depends on what what issues the people who don't have the time and inclination to be a partisan. Listen, I get it. If you're a liberal or a new Democrat, you tend to look at anything Premier Ford does with suspicion. You, you People, they doubt his motives, they doubt his ethics, they doubt his competence. Same time, conservatives like what this guy is doing because he's actually delivering real action for Ontarians. Most yeah, they understand want to know cash there- envelopes, David. You know, it, it's a lot of people... Uh, they they go to events for for relatives and friends that are getting married, and you know especially if it's a young couple, they wanna they wanna help them out. But right now, a lot of people are struggling. They're dealing with the exploding cost of housing and food, and they're really stretched. And they see somebody who's already a millionaire. We've got lots of lots of cash and lots of opportunity, and I'm I'm talking about the premier and his family charging people to come to a stag and doe, and then it's a wink, wink, nod, nod. If you want to give gifts to help out this this young couple starting out, a lot of people think, "Wow, rules for some and rules for other and uh, others," and you know that layered on top of the genuine concern about. Uh, the environment and the carving out of the green belt directly in violation of a promise, a commitment by the premier. That that looks it looks sketchy on a number of levels. Well, hard to disagree with that. This past weekend, more than 50 people rallied in front of Ottawa's Herzig Eye Institute to protest the province's decision to expand the availability of surgeries offered by private clinics in Ontario. Peggy, I'll start with you on this one. If the same amount of money is being used to get the job done, what does it matter who does it? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that there are public facilities, operating rooms in our hospitals and clinics that are dark right now, that are not being used. Why? Because there aren't the staff to to fill those jobs. And so the obvious solution is we need more trained staff. We need to treat them better so they don't leave um, in, in our healthcare system. And what Premier Ford is doing is going to, in fact, siphon off staff into private clinics, um, and and that's going to make uh, even greater stress on our public system. Why would that happen? Well, uh, private clinics they they can afford to pay a bit more. Why? They have to take a profit. Uh, but they are going to sell other services. So when you go and they'll say, well, you can get the, the public lens that if you want the cheap version, but if you really want good eyesight, this is the one you need and it's going to cost you 
more. You may have to stay overnight in a clinic, which you wouldn't need to do in the public system. You'll have to pay for that. So not only can it cost people more, but it can drain away needed healthcare staff from our public system. I think people uh, should be concerned. This is not going to improve access. It's not going to improve the quality of care that Ontarians are getting. David, do you see it the same way? Well, I think the one place I differ with Peggy is, you know, she talks as if the status quo healthcare system is working great and we're weakening it. The status quo is broken. And, and in, in fairness, there's no, no one's really proposed from the, from the left doing something different with our healthcare system and stop pouring money and more of the same. The, the system is broken. Wait times are higher. Emergency, uh, the, 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 you know, uh, long-term care spaces, our emergency departments. And so the real issue here is, uh, is there a way in which the patient, from the standpoint of the patient, they just want to know they can get the service they need with the shortest possible wait and as well, and don't not have to pay out of pocket for it. And finally, we have a government saying, you know what, let's actually put the patient first. Let's, oh, let's not play kind of ideological games with the system. And let's, if there's a way of spending people of public money, no cost to the payer, no cost to the patient, is there a way to, uh, to, to give them better service on a faster timeline? Let's not play ideological games and try to score points at the expense of patient care. And so finally, you have a government that's prepared to face oh, the attack from ideologues in order to deliver better care for patients. And that's what the Ford well, government's doing. Option B is... About idea, talk about ideologues. This, this guy's reading his notes right from the Premier's office. You know, the thing here <laughs> is, uh, my model on this is the Kensington Clinic. You want to talk about reform instead of the status quo. The, the reforms that they've initiated so far are not going to move the needle on anything that they talk about, like emergency room wait times. These are little itty-bitty increments designed to distract us. And the real point I want to make right out of the gate, Marissa, you said same cost in the public system and the private system. Mm-hmm. If they are transparent about pricing, I'm 99% sure it's going to show they're going to pay more to perform these in the private clinic model than they would for incremental uh, increases in the public sector. And they, and I think that they won't be transparent in answering that question because people won't like the answer. They're paying more to get less. You know, George, I'm kind of agnostic on this. I mean, from the standpoint of the patient, I, I think it, it, it wasn't too long ago when, when putting healthcare and privatization in the same breath might have caused a more visceral reaction from people. But lately, you know, with headlines like hospital emergency departments across Ontario forced to close 158 times in the past year, I think that there, to some extent, people are looking for change. Yeah, I realize that. But the thing about it is that that created this idea, well, something's got to be done. But if you look at the volumes in this announcement around the privatization, these are little bitty increments in the overall context of healthcare. So they're using it as a sort of a wedge to get the conversation going. What do they have in mind for the subsequent phases? These people have been getting billions of new dollars for healthcare. They've been squirreling dough away, but they haven't been spending it. So, you know, and then when they do go to spend it, they're going to pay more for these than elsewhere. I would just say, though, the cataracts is relatively low-hanging fruit in the sense that there are, like the Hertzig, very well-established, uh, you know, clinic environments. And, uh, but that's, that, that, that's, that's just one surgery. We built the Kensington Clinic in a not-for-profit model in, in Toronto that's doing 15,000 of these a year. Let's get to the call lines. Pat, in Toronto, you're on the line. Go ahead. Well, the, the interesting issue is we need information. We need audited financial statements from each one of these private clinics that is set up, because otherwise we're only talking in generalities. Mind you, in generality, I would ask the question, would you buy a used car from Doug Ford? And I think the answer I certainly would have is no, because I'm not sure I can trust what the man says. We need some proof of all these things, and therefore audited financial statements, and the the Ontario auditor would be more than willing, I'm sure, to help in this issue. That's what we need. 
reliable information. Peggy, I'll get you to react to that. Thanks, Pat. Well, I think I think the caller makes an excellent point because, uh, you know, you just have to ask yourself logically, why would anyone go into business, set up a private clinic if they weren't going to be able to make money? Of course they're going to be able to make money. They're rubbing their hands with glee. How are they going to make money if we're making better use of our healthcare dollars, if we're not spending money on the facilities we already have, but we're going to put those scarce resources into private facilities that have to pay shareholders, executives, uh, how are they going to people? They are going to offer and encourage people to take procedures that they wouldn't normally get and don't need. And because they don't need it, it's not covered by Medicare. I mean, nobody's going into this business to lose money. So if they're making money, where is it coming from? It's coming out of the pockets of the people who are going to be diverted into these uh, private services, and it's going to drain staff from existing emergency wards and operating rooms, taking jobs in the for-profit sector. It's a bad model. Set up community clinics, but make them non-profit, as George says, like the Kensington Clinic. Make them non-profit and, and, and staff them with public resources. All right, before we move on, let's get to one more caller. Daryl in Toronto, you're on the line. Hi. I go to a dermatology clinic where when a doctor sends in a referral, their message the last few years is, don't phone us for four weeks. And then when finally you talk to them, it's months and months till you can get an appointment. The other day, out of curiosity, I phoned in to see about a Botox appointment. I phoned in at 4.15 in the afternoon, and they were willing to give me an appointment for 3.15 the next day. So my concern is that these clinics are going to be using OHIP money, taxpayers' money, to fund the operation for their profit-making stuff. And they're going to do whatever they need to get just the amount of OHIP they need so that they could run crazy with their profit organization. My sense would be uh, to not tax them on the money they make from OHIP and tax them like 80% on their for-profit thing. And I think you'd see a complete turnaround. All right, Daryl, thanks for your call and for your comment. You know, I guess we'll just have to see sort of how this plays out. In the meantime, let's turn to a report out of Ottawa, something that was rumored only a few months ago now, hard evidence uncovering the extent to which China meddled in the last election, affecting the outcomes of 11 races. David, this is pretty serious stuff. Well, yeah, it's a a hostile foreign dictatorship uh, that just recently had kidnapped two Canadians. Um Thanks through the, whoever the bravery, whoever leaked these documents, showing that this hostile foreign dictatorship was clearly in favor of re-electing Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, um, uh, which they viewed as a the kind of weak government they wanted to they, they'd like to see in place. And a the prime minister repressed this, denied knowledge. B he then downplayed it. I think this, don't think there's a problem. Neither should you. And C now he's on a hunt for the whistleblower. Um, you know, our democracy has been compromised here, uh, and it's been compromised in a way that that uh, is is ethically disturbing to, to Canadians of any political persuasion. And the the um, the banality, the complacency uh, of the prime minister, who has directly benefited from Chinese interference on behalf to, in support of his own political party, to me is frankly disturbing. It, it, it could be the greatest risk to the Canadian democracy in the last hundred years. George, do you view it the same way? And I'll just I'll read what Trudeau said in response. He said, it's certainly a sign that security within CSIS needs to be reviewed. All Canadians can have total confidence that the outcomes of the 2019 and 21 elections were determined by Canadians and Canadians alone at the voting booth. He does seem more concerned with how the information was leaked from CSIS than with the actual interference. Um, and also his comment about how Canadians have, can have confidence. I mean, not according to the report, which found that China, through disinformation, social media, foreign funding, infiltrated the election to neutralize, if you will, Canadian critics of Chinese policies, MP Alice Wong among them. Well, I personally take a stronger, uh, take a strong position, uh, against this. I can tell you that as a politician, uh, 
I experienced uh, some of those influences. I'm not talking about in the context of influencing votes, but saw how much uh, central government influence there had been spread out through what seemed like community, uh, even within the even within the political context in in Toronto. So. Uh, you know, I'm 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 less shocked. I'm less shocked by it, but it's kind of mortifying, like uh, uh, to see that level of to see that level of uh, that level of involvement and seemingly their interest in preserving the instability of minority government. Maybe was part of the motivation. Uh, you know, I'm not expert in these in these matters, but I think uh, Canadians are uh, well, uh, you know, well benefit from having uh, more information. Uh, more information about this and to force the government to take appropriate steps. Peggy, how should the federal government respond to a threat like this? I mean, why not sanction members of the Communist Party of China and expel diplomats um, for well, their efforts I mean, in coordination? I, here? I uh, agree with, with David in his point that the Prime Minister seems more concerned about how the media found out about this than he does the fact that influence uh, is being exerted by China mm-hmm. on our elections. I think a, a very basic step would be to do what other countries like the U.S. and Australia have done, which is to have a foreign influence registry where anyone working on behalf of a foreign government or corporation has to, has to file notice. You'd think that would be a basic first step. Um, but I, I think we need to treat this seriously. I mean, you know, I think generally people have confidence in Canadian elections and the electoral machinery. I've been to many countries and observed many elections, and it's not always the case, and it can erode very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have personally, like George, I've experienced the influence of China. We have a large Tibetan-Canadian community in my riding, and I was active around that issue, and I I received correspondence from the Chinese uh, consulate about, uh, or Chinese embassy, pardon me, about my uh, being outspoken around Tibet. They were trying to correct my mistaken approach. Um, So I think this is something that we need to be, we need to take seriously. I don't think we need to let our hair on fire, but we need to understand that uh, the the confidence in our elections is, can be fragile, and we need to absolutely ensure that there is no foreign influence or interference. All right, let's get to the report last Friday from Commissioner Paul Rulo, which, uh, uh, again, feels like so long ago. But, you know, <laughs> as I said in my introduction, I always wonder if these decisions to release a big report on a Friday of a long weekend or a deliberate attempt to bury the story. Nonetheless, Trudeau justified in his use of the Emergencies Act to quell the protests in Ottawa. David, your reaction? I think the report skewed pretty close to what public opinion is on this issue. And I think it changed no one. Um, I think the only people who were sitting with breathless anticipation about the conclusion of this report were people in the press gallery. Uh, the partisans, the political people of all politics, of all persuasions, liberal, conservative, new Democrat, all of them, everyone expected to some degree or another, Rouleau was going to rule that the use of the Emergency Act was justified. Literally, there was no suspense uh, about this. And the people who are, and, and, and I don't think any minds were changed. Uh, if you were angry about the about Trudeau invoking the EA, the report didn't change your mind. They're even angrier. And if you are if you are angry or, and, and about the about the convoy and 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 all this this all served to just reinforce their views uh, in support of what the prime minister did. So really, it's a nothing burger on a, on an issue that already has cemented public opinion. Uh, you have to spend, you have to look around for a long time to find someone whose views on this issue was changed by that report. David, uh, to or rather George, rather to David's point, I don't think it'll bring much comfort to those who b- believe Trudeau's actions were a violation of civil liberties. Yeah, probably not for, probably not for the hard, you know, the hardest liners of those. And that's, that's a lot of them, but, uh, I think the report at 2,000 pages also sought to give some uh, life and recognition to the role that 
politics may have played in making those circumstances more challenging. So there was some accountability there. I thought it aired uh, rather uh, clearly in a way that people should be eyes wide open about the dysfunction at the senior levels vis-a-vis the lack of participation of Ontario. Uh, uh, I think that was quite extraordinary. Uh, We'd heard about it in a sense, but I think that was a very, very interesting aspect of the uh, of the report. But I do agree with David's analysis that probably, pardon me, probably not too many minds uh, changed by it. And Peggy, last word to you. (laughs) Yeah, I I do agree. I don't think minds were changed. Um, Something I thought um, Justice Rouleau did quite effectively was give all positions and airing. You know, he listened to the protesters. He listened to the people of Ottawa. He listened to government officials. And I think, you know, especially for the people who went to Ottawa, um, I've been to many demonstrations. I know what it's like to be out in the cold. Um, People obviously felt strongly they weren't homogenous in their views, but listening to people and understanding what concerns brought them out to those demonstrations, I think, was important. And I think that um, the the report straddles a, a line in a fashion that doesn't con- completely let the federal government off the hook, uh, has criticism for enough criticism to go around for everyone, but allowed everyone to also be heard. So I, I think he I think he did a, a very fine job. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Peggy Nash, George Smitherman, and David Tarrant, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And up next, we'll get to that headline in the Toronto Star this morning about the number of ER closures that have taken place in the province this year. A staggering report. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back. Marissa Lennox in for Libby Snymer. The Toronto Star published an explosive story this morning about the concerning number of ER closures that have taken place in the province. To be specific, ERs had to close 158 times in the past year, which translated to over 4,000 hours, or 184 days of lost productivity. The closures impacted ERs in 24 different hospitals in the province, many of which are located in rural communities. So what is contributing to all of this? Is it just because of a staffing shortage of professionals? like nurses. The province is reportedly working with the College of Nurses to expand seats in college nursing programs and make it easier for overseas trained nurses to work in our hospitals. But is that enough? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Here with reaction, Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital and Robert Aldred Hughes, president and CEO of Glengarry Memorial. Thank you for your time. No problem. Dr. Spiegelman, isn't this the promise of Medicare that the the, the system will be there for you when you need it, regardless of your ability to pay? Yeah, uh, I definitely think that's the case. Uh, uh, the the basic the basic tenant of our healthcare system is that we provide care, especially emergency care, to everyone that lives in our country or and our cities and and towns. And clearly, closing emergency rooms is highly concerning to all healthcare providers and the healthcare system as a whole. Uh, the emergency room itself is really the center of the hospital, right? It's the catch-all area where real emergencies happen, where, you know, people people come in from the community to the emergency room seeking immediate care. And without these emergency rooms being open 24-7, you know, people are going to die and people are not going to not gonna get the appropriate uh, emergency care that they, they need. So clearly, it's highly concerning to all healthcare providers. Robert, Glengarry Memorial was cited as the hospital with the most ER closures. Maybe you could shed some light on the reasons why for us. 
Certainly. Um, over the course of the summer and the fall, uh, Glengarry Memorial Hospital did need to uh, temporarily uh, suspend service uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, all of the, the reasons why we had to, to close the emergency department for a period of time were related to uh, nursing staffing uh, shortages and uh, the sheer volume of uh, vacancies that we were experiencing uh, at the, the hospital, as well as uh, temporary uh, leaves of absences, whether that be um, leaves for pregnancy and parental leave or bereavement leave, you know, things that happen in life uh, that uh, we try and plan for uh, and some things you can't plan for. Uh, but uh, we, we really did our best and, and we, and unfortunately, ter- an unfortunate term that we, we heard a lot uh, was that we were piecing it together. And, uh, you know, that was the challenge uh, over the course of the summer and the fall. Uh, at Glengarry, we have not closed the, the emergency department have not needed to close the emergency department since the, the end of October. So we have been four months uh, without closures, but it's been with uh, laser focus and a significant commitment uh, from our people uh, to be able to maintain services. When you're in a small uh, rural hospital, uh, it does not take much for your staffing to all of a sudden become very, very fragile, uh, just, just given the, the small numbers of nursing staff that are already on, which is your regular complement of of staff. Uh, Dr. Spiegelman, does anything in this report surprise you? Maybe I'll just preface this with, we've seen hospital closures before, even before the pandemic, but the scale of these ER closures over the last year seems to be unprecedented. You know, it's not that surprising in terms of the number of nurses that are leaving the system and coming into the system. Like, clearly, that's the issue. It, It comes down to manpower. It comes down to the finances to finance this manpower. I think that's where the healthcare system clearly needs to focus on. And I feel, I feel for, um, for rural hospitals, like we were talking about, because one or two nurses that are down or one doctor that's down creates a really significant shortage in that emergency room for that shift, as opposed to a hospital like I work at, where it's a large community urban hospital where we have 10 doctors on. So if you have one doctor that's sick, it's not such a big deal compared to a rural hospital. So definitely there's a a manpower issue, not only in the system as a whole, but where these doctors and nurses are located as well. Well, and not only that, but the stretch or distance between hospitals and rural areas would be that much greater for a patient, would it not, Robert? And so paint a picture for us just how severe a hospital closure in a rural area? I mean, are the lives that are potentially at risk there? Absolutely. So, you know, from, from our circumstances here, uh, where our hospital is uh, located in uh, Alexandria, we are uh, in the middle uh, between uh, Cornwall Community Hospital and uh, Hawkesbury uh, General Hospital. And so that creates about a, a 30-minute uh, commute from our hospital uh, to to one of the, the alternate hospitals uh, to our north or to our south of us. Uh, and, you know, 30 minutes does take take time. Uh, you know, we are, we are extremely indebted into to the our EMS uh, partners uh, because it also puts a strain on their system. They have uh, crews on the road uh, that are now traveling at a, a further distance to get uh, sick patients to uh, the closest uh, open emergency room department. So as much as we try and uh, coordinate uh, the care for for patients, uh, it is not lost on, on any of us that that doesn't come with uh, with a significant element of risk. And uh, it, it's why we, we continue to do everything possible uh, to maintain our emergency department services open 24-7 uh, and that we review, review that every single day uh, to ensure that uh, you know, we, we will not be in that situation. Uh, but we can't guarantee it. And that's the, that's the challenging part. Uh, we continue to do the best we can. Uh, and right now, uh, we are uh, in a stable position and, and we hope that that uh, planning will carry us through the summer. Hopefully through the summer until the next vacation period. It's usually in July and August when I think we see a lot of these closures. But let's talk about some solutions, Dr. Spiegelman, because the province working with the College of Nurses to expand seats and nursing programs, also trying to make it easier for overseas trained nurses to work in our hospitals. Are are those the right solutions? Um, Is it enough? 
Yeah, I think that's where the focus needs to be, like putting the resources, including financial resources, into getting more nurses. And no matter how you get those nurses, it doesn't really matter. But you have to also make sure that that those nurses and any new healthcare providers educated to the standard that we're, we expect in the Canadian healthcare system. So I don't think it's so straightforward that you take everyone that's trained as a nurse in any country. We have to make sure that they, they have a the knowledge to practice medicine in, in Canada as well. So I think we have to focus on getting more nurses, retaining these nurses and retaining the old nurses that have been here. I mean, in our own hospital, we see a lot of our nurses going to Alberta because they're paying more, the U.S. because they're paying more. And I think that's something we have to focus on as well, not only the ins, but also the outs. Well, and Robert, I mean, with respect to overseas trained nurses, they aren't trained in our system. And, um, you know, what challenges does that present? So one of the the areas that uh, the College of Nurses has implemented is the Internationally Educated Nurses Supervised Experience Practice Program, or SPEP. Uh, for short. Uh, so that allows uh, for hospitals who are accepted into the program uh, to work with uh, nurses that are trained internationally, uh, but who, who have also practiced internationally to ass- assess their skill sets against the College of Nurses standards. So these are nurses that have either done additional uh, training and, and learning uh, in Ontario. Uh, they have passed the uh, NCLEX, which is the national exam uh, for nursing and now uh, being assessed based on their experience. So in my mind, these programs are supporting uh, an increase of internationally educated nurses into the system uh, in a coordinated uh, fashion that uh, does allow for uh, an assessment of those skills. So I think that that, that, that is a, a great, uh, great opportunity. But I, I also wanted to say that uh, the, the program that is uh, coming up for the paid tuition uh, for uh, nursing students in certain areas of the province that are, are in need, like us here in Eastern Ontario, uh, is another great opportunity for that future focus to increase the supply of uh, nurses in to the system. When we know that this is a, a supply and demand uh, issue, it's not going to be fixed overnight. But this will provide or may provide opportunities uh, for individuals to go into healthcare professions who perhaps may not have been in a, a position uh, financially uh, to, to attend post-secondary education out of high school, uh, given that uh, uh, now it, it will be paid for by you. Uh, agree to practice in those underserviced or high-need areas in, in the province. So I think that there's a number of steps that government is taking that is a step in the, in the right, right direction, and it's a multi-pronged approach uh, to ensure that we are um, supporting a, a strategic human resources planning for the, for the province. Lastly, uh, Dr. Spiegelman, this report comes at a time when Ontario is contemplating how to move forward with health care, um, including privatizing the delivery of certain aspects of it. You know, how will that impact our hospitals? What would you like to see? Yeah, I, I, at this point, uh, everything comes down to manpower, right? So if you're taking away nurses that are working in those private diagnostic or surgical services, they're not working in the hospital. And no matter how you look at it, it's going to affect the manpower within the public healthcare system. So I, I think, again, I'd like to see an increased number of, of, of spots for nurses, an increased number of international educated nurses coming into our system to help all these aspects. And I, I don't think it's a very complex, complex solution that is required. It's not like so straightforward where you just get more people in and that's going to help the system. I think it's, very multi-pronged and complex where you're looking at different aspects. You're looking at the nurses that are going to the hospital. You're looking at the nurses going to the, these private healthcare facilities. You're looking at other ways of delivering healthcare. You're looking at increasing number of family doctors from my perspective so they don't end up in the emergency room. So there's very complex solutions to this. Mm. And Robert, I'll give the final word to you. Absolutely. A complex uh, system in terms of the privatization of uh, some of the um, services that are, are offered in hospitals and going to uh, um, independent health facilities. 
I think that I do agree that this is a person power um, issue, but I think that we also need to look at uh, the the financial issues, the quality issues uh, that may stem from from that as well, and and really focused in on what other services hospitals may be able to to offer if given the financial resources to increase, uh, you know, whether that be OR time or otherwise, uh, to be able to to keep those services uh, in hospital uh, to support uh, safe quality care. And I, I would I would urge that uh, you know government consider uh, looking at hospitals who may have underutilized uh, aspects of their hospital where they could support uh, increased uh, volume to support uh, reduction in wait lists. So I, I think you know I have lots of thoughts on, on that. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but I do believe that there is a, a role for uh, small rural hospitals uh, to play in uh, in reducing those wait times. And, uh, and we'd, I'd love to come to the table and, and have those discussions. All right. We'll have to leave it there, Dr. Jamie Spiegelman and Robert Aldred-Hughes. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Have a great day. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back. Marissa Lennox in for Libby Snymer. Russian President Vladimir Putin in his State of the Nation address to Russia's National Assembly announced that he would be suspending his country's participation in the Nuclear Arms Reduction Treaty with the United States and paralleling the last remaining pact that regulates the world's two largest nuclear arsenals. This comes on the heels of a surprise visit by U.S. President Biden to Kiev on Monday, a dramatic show of solidarity with Ukraine's heroic leader Volodymyr Zelensky days before the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What does all of this mean for the future of this war? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. To break it down, I'm joined by Dr. Andre Zeronyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. Good to have you on the program. Hi. Thanks for, for the invitation. First of all, what is your reaction to President Biden's surprise visit to Ukraine? Well, I thought that it was a great uh, demonstration of solidarity with Ukraine, and yeah, I appreciated it. He also, in this meeting, announced he'd supply additional arms and would help pr- provide help for as long as needed while he was there. W- what are the implications of such an announcement? Uh, or is they are in line with uh, with the previous announcements coming from him and his administration. So this was U.S. position before the visit, and he just reasserted it. Do you think that President Biden being over there is uh, an indicator that perhaps we could um, see air support delivered to Ukraine in the coming days or weeks? Um, I, I am skeptical. Um, we know that the negotiations, uh, are there, but, uh, there were no declarations, no statements from Western officials yet. So, um, um, I am, I'm hesitant. Uh, we know that even tanks, which are coming to Ukraine, will take several months uh, to arrive and won't be there before the end of March. So when it comes to air support, um, um, not this summer, probably. What does it mean that uh, Putin's pulling out of the nuclear arms treaty? Because... You know, I don't think it took a treaty for Putin to refrain from using nuclear weapons. If he wanted to use them, he would have used them already. He's clearly in violation of all kinds of other conventions. It hasn't stopped him. But what's what say you? Well, I think that's a message for Russians, first of all. Um, Putin cannot actually show them any success on the battlefield in Ukraine, and he still wants to preserve his strong leader's image among Russians. And um, in fact, I don't see that any kind of material consequences coming from this announcement, because basically we are talking about a treaty that limited the number of warheads Russia and the U.S. Um, had. 
And I don't think Russia will be building any new, you know, installations and new warheads. And even the warheads they have right now, it's a sufficient number to destroy the world, right? So they don't really need more of this. I think this is more of a symbolic declaration. And the treaty was actually de facto denounced even before. So Russia refused to let American inspectors um, even before Putin made this announcement. So Russia was already in non-compliance with the terms of the treaty. Hmm. Now, Russia warned that if NATO further armed Ukraine with battle tanks and long-range missiles, um, this was when NATO was announcing that they would be sending all of the, you know, the Leopard 2 tanks and the M1 Abrams, it would lead to a whole new level of war. Do you think the West has overcome its fear of provoking Putin? Um, Yeah, I think they they are overcoming. And uh, Putin's announcements that target is Russians, but also Western general public, right? He wants to use the threat of the nuclear weapons to uh, prevent um, aid from the West to Ukraine, and he wants to see some kind of pressure from Western public on their governments, right? He wants to steer this worry of a possible nuclear, nuclear war. What would you say Ukraine needs to turn the tide of this war? Well, I'm not a military specialist, so <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not an expert on what exactly Ukraine needs in terms of uh, military help. But from like from what Ukrainian general said, yes, they need aircrafts, but even more, they need artillery pieces and uh, battle tanks. And ideally, there there should be some kind of standardization in terms of the help coming from the West, because right now it's a logistical nightmare. I mean, all those systems, they need maintenance, they need repairs, and because they are used intensively, uh, they have to be repaired frequently all the time. And uh, yeah, right now Ukraine has a dozen of various um, APCs, right, armored personal carriers, and uh, it's just physically very difficult to service service them for Ukrainians. I'm talking to Dr. Andrei Zaranyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, who teaches about the Soviet Union, Ukraine, nationalism, and the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. I just want to go back to President Biden's visit to Ukraine. I mean, what message does that send to to Putin and to the Russian people? Well, I think the implications are clear. U.S. is standing with Ukraine and U.S doesn't fear Russia, right? The the very fact that President Biden was in Kyiv where Russian missiles land basically on a regular basis. Uh, I think it was a very brave act um, on behalf of the president and uh, a very strong symbolic gesture. Mm. You know, it doesn't appear the war is going to end anytime soon. Uh, what do you think it'll take for that to happen? And, you know, I appreciate it's a difficult question to answer, but is it military success? Is it a stalemate on the battlefield? Is it some sort of contrived armistice? Or would that only result in Russia trying to rearm and pursue the war again? Yeah, I mean... Both sides should be sufficiently exhausted and be ready for some kind of peace peace negotiations. And it will be also a question of which side has stronger positions for such negotiations. And uh, yeah, it will all be decided on the battlefield, but also at the home front, whether you know, the population still supports the war effort. And, of course, Russia is a larger country with a stronger economy. 
uh, it's easier for Russia to fight this war, but so far Ukraine been lucky with the Western support and uh, let's just hope that it continues um, because again, so far all those Russian attempts to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure and to terrorize its population essentially failed. Mm-hmm. Um, the morale is still strong, and uh, Ukrainian people, all in all, um, support their government and support uh, the military efforts to recapture Ukrainian territory. They sure do. And I mean, right now we're in the midst of a Russian offensive, but it's a matter of weeks or months away when Ukraine launches its own offensive once they're armed completely by the West. And, you know, I don't think that Ukraine will settle at anything less than um, rebuilding what was originally theirs, and that includes Crimea. Yes, and there was a recent statement from uh, Alexander Navalny, uh, the main opposition figure in Russia, you may say the leader of the opposition, of the real opposition in Russia, in which he said that, yes, the borders from 1991, the return of Crimea to Ukraine, should be the starting point, basically, for the peace treaty that would end this war. And uh, we can still be hopeful for some kind of regime change in in Russia, which will happen because of Russia's military defeats. But yeah, I think the battlefield is absolutely crucial to all of this. And uh, Ukraine does need uh, constant military support. And the fate of this war will be decided on the battlefield. Lastly, and before I let you go, I would be remiss to not ask about China. I mean, for China, Russia's become the most important partner overseas. Will they go down the route of supplying weapons? They may. Uh, I mean, some claim that they are already supplying weapons. And, uh, yeah, China's positions, also India's positions, they are important because they are undermining Western sanctions. Um, Russia is reorienting its trade towards, let's say, the east and the south. Um, and... Uh, Effects of the economic sanctions were not as disastrous as the West hoped so far. And of course, we are all waiting for the Chinese peace plan, which they announced, and they should make it public on the 24th, I think, of February. But, uh, yeah, I have no clue as to what they will propose, and I think we should just wait and see. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Andre Zaranyuk, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for the invite. Have a good day. Take care. That's it for me today. Libya's back in place tomorrow. Until next time. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.